Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew 22. I'm going to go from verse 1 to verse 22 in Matthew 22. We're on the day, the third day of Passion Week, Tuesday. Sunday was the triumphal entry, Monday was the cleansing of the temple, and Tuesday was a day of teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and the chief priests and all of Jesus' enemies as he delivers a bunch of very pointed parables to them. And this is another parable here that we're going to be talking about, the parable of the wedding banquet. We'll start in verse 1, going verses 1 and 2. Once more Jesus spoke to them in parables. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. Now, the previous two parables, the parable of the two sons and the parable of the absentee vineyard and the uh, wicked tenant farmers, had one point, is God's going to take your kingdom away. Well, this parable follows along the same lines, except here he's going to say, I'm going to burn your city down. So he's giving it to them right between the eyes. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. The king is... God the Father, the Son is Jesus. God gave a wedding banquet for his son, and he's going to invite people to the wedding banquet. The wedding banquet stands for the kingdom of God, so the invitation was to come into the kingdom. Now, there's no bride in this wedding banquet mentioned. People a lot of times say, like to think, well, where, the bride is the church, but that doesn't really fit with the details of this parable. Remember, parables are supposed to make one main point. We don't want to get bogged down in the details here, so we don't hear anything. In fact, here's a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. But observe carefully that the bride does not come into view in this parable. It's designed being to teach certain truths under the figure of guest at a wedding feast and the want of a wedding garment, which would not have harmonized with the introduction of the bride. I don't know why it would not. It seems like Jesus could have put the bride in there, but he didn't, so it doesn't matter. He's not talking about the church now. He's talking about the fact that the Jews are rejecting Jesus and they're going to get kicked in the teeth for it. Now, this wedding banquet parable is different than the parable of the Great Supper, and I've had trouble distinguishing that in my mind sometimes. And so let's refer to that parable of the Great Supper, which is in Luke 14. It's only in Luke 14. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, The one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God is blessed. Then he told him a man was giving a large banquet and invited many. And at the, t at the time of the banquet, he sent his slave to tell those who were invited, Come, because everything is now ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said, I brought a field. Another one said, I brought five yoke of oxen. Another said, I just got married, and so forth. And so they didn't come to the kingdom. So the idea is very, very similar. The Jews reject. And then Jesus says, all right, nobody wants to come to my banquet. They go out into the highways and lanes and make them come in. That's the Gentiles coming in. So it's the same point of, the, of that parable, but it's a different parable. It's the parable of the Great Supper. So don't get those confused. Let's go to verse 3 in Matthew 22. He, that's the king, throwing the wedding banquet for his son, God the Father. He sent out his slaves to summon those invited to the banquet. But they didn't want to come. The slaves, of course, are those who go out and spread the gospel, starting with John the Baptist, then the 12 apostles of Christ had gone out, and then Jesus sent the 70 out, and then, of course, ministers of the gospel after Pentecost, the apostles and all the unknown, unheralded evangelists who went out. Everybody's going out saying, come to the kingdom. Of course, the Jews were not interested. They didn't want to come. Matthew 22, verses 4 through 6. Again, he sent out other slaves and said, Tell those who were invited, Look, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Notice that the kingdom of heaven is referred to the banquet, is uh, put under the figure of a banquet. It's a great thing to be in the kingdom. Righteousness, peace, and joy. 
great thing. It's a fun thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's not, oh, you can't do this and you can't do that. No, that's not the kingdom. The kingdom is is a, a great time of hilarity. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went away, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the others seized his slaves, treated them outrageously, and killed them. Well, how were some of God's messengers, his slaves, treated badly? Well, remember, Peter and John were thrown into jail by the Jews at the very beginning, right after Pentecost. Acts chapter 5, I believe it is. He killed John, and some of his slaves were killed in the parable. Well, John the Baptist was killed by the Jews. So the Jews exhibited their typical asinine hard-heartedness. Jefferson Frost and Brown makes the point that in this parable we see two kinds of people, two types of unbelievers, those who are indifferent and say, I don't care, i got something else to do. i got to go to my business, got to go to my farm. And the others who are just downright hostile, I mean, in present-day terms, there's a lot of people like that. They just don't care about the gospel. And then there's people like the professional atheists who get on websites and blaspheme God every chance they get, full of hatred and vitriol and bile. Well, that's the other types. And Jesus is talking about those two types of people. Now, Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, in his opinion, this is referring to the acts of the Jews after Jesus had died and after Pentecost had come. I don't think so. I think it refers to their attitude from the very beginning, from John the Baptist all the way through Pentecost and all the way. We go to verse 7 in Matthew chapter 22. The king was enraged, that's God the Father, so he sent out his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned down their city. Well, that is an obvious reference to the burning of Jerusalem in AD 70. So Jesus, as John Gill points out, so Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you're not coming to my kingdom, to my wedding banquet, and God's going to burn your city down. Well, I don't think the Pharisees realized that how literally that was going to happen in 40 short years. They're going to be cooked. Let's look at some of these scriptures. Now, again, this, this point of the parable is often overlooked by dispensationalists. They're always talking about some mythical end-time, millennial, pre-trib, battle, Armageddon, and all this stuff that they make up. And they miss the point of this. They burned down their city. Jesus is talking to Pharisees in his time who are going to have their city burned down. I never saw it because I was raised a dispensationalist and I was inflicted with last day's madness all of my young Christian life. And I didn't ever see this. But now that when you take a, a proper Orthodox preterist view of Matthew 24, which is coming up in two chapters in two days from now, or maybe less than two days shortly, that when you see that, when you take a proper view of the Olivet Discourse, you realize that the whole context of it is burning down the city. That's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24. Not one generation will pass away till all these things take, take place, including the leveling of the temple, one stone from another. Now here's some scriptures that refer to the destruction of Jerusalem. Matthew 23, verse 38, next chapter. See, your house is left to you desolate, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. Luke 19, verses 43 through 44, this is the Olivet, Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. A perfect prediction of what the Romans did when they came in and put up siege walls against Jerusalem and hemmed them in on every side until they all died. They were dying of starvation in the city until the Romans finally just burned it down. They meaning the Jews' enemies, will crush you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in you 
because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Perfect description of the Jewish war culminating in AD 70. And then, of course, the first famous three verses in Matthew 24. As Jesus left and was going out of the temple complex, his disciples came up and called his attention to the temple buildings. Then he replied to them, Don't you see all these things? I assure you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things be, and what is the sign of your coming into the age? That was AD 70. That's when the temple went down. One stone was not left on another, which we'll talk about when we get to Matthew 24. But the point is, is the city was going to be burned down, and Jesus predicted it right there on Tuesday of Passion Week, Matthew 22, verses 8 through 10. Then he, that's the king, told his slaves, that's his messengers, his preachers, his apostles, his evangelist. Then he told his slaves, the banquet is ready, the kingdom of God is ready. But those who were invited, the Jews, were not worthy. Obviously, they ignored the banquet, or they actually killed those who were inviting them to the banquet. Therefore, the king continued, go to where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. That's people outside the burnt down city, and that would be the Gentiles who were not in the city to get burnt down. Go to where the roads exit the city, invite everyone you find to the banquet. So those slaves, that's Jesus's ministers, his evangelists, apostles, and so forth, those slaves went out on the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. Now that means relatively evil and relatively good, civic righteousness, unsaved people, and the down and out, the people in the jails, the bums, the drunkards, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, that kind of people. It doesn't matter. Jesus calls them all to the wedding banquet. How can they go to a wedding banquet? Being evil? Well, they were going to get wedding garments, as we're going to see here in a minute. The wedding banquet was filled with guests, wedding garments provided by the host. Now notice that the city is burnt down. That means the Jews can't come to the wedding banquet now. That means the Jewish leaders and those who rejected Christ. Now, of course, this doesn't preclude believing Jews coming from later. But the point is, is in this parable, is God is leaving the Jews because of their rebellion and their hardness and their murderous intent. But he's still going to keep the kingdom going, keep the banquet going. He's not going to shut the banquet down. Because Gentiles are still able to come because people, his messengers are, are going to go to the road out into the outside the city, outside the Jewish city, and invite the Gentiles in. Now, when did this happen? Well, as you know, the church was Jewish at first, till right around Acts 8, I think it was. That's when the persecution of the Jewish church, the Jews started persecuting the Jewish church in Acts 8, and then the apostles went out, and by the time you get to Acts 13, Paul who started out preaching to the Jews, he switched and went to the Gentiles. Acts 13, verse 46, Then Paul and Barnabas boldly said, It was necessary that God's message be spoken to you first. But since you reject it, this is a Pisidian Antioch, but since you reject it and consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. You recall the Jews are scattered all throughout Asia Minor, all throughout the Roman Empire. They had synagogues in every city. So Paul and Barnabas go to the first synagogue. That's where they started. And the Jews said, Nuts to you. We don't want Christ. And so Paul and Barnum said, well, nuts to you. We're going to the Gentiles. That's Acts 13. Another classic example. This is in Acts 18.6. This is when Paul is speaking to the Jews, again, at the synagogue in Corinth in Greece. But when they resisted and blasphemed, that's the Jews, he shook his robe and told them, your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent, clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So you see, Jesus is predicting in this parable exactly what happened in early church history. The Jews were not worthy to go to the banquet, the parable says, Jesus says, because they spurned the invitation to the banquet. They made light of the kingdom. Matthew 22, verses 11 through 12. But when the king came in to view the guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding. 
So he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Now, here is a conjecture in my NIV study Bible, and this is backed up by Adam Clark, so I assume it's true that it possibly may have been the custom for the host to provide guests with wedding garments. This would have been necessary for those invited from the road because they wouldn't be dressed. Now, I've, I, when I hit, read this, I thought, well, yeah, but if you're invited, you still got time to go home and change into wedding clothes and come in. But it doesn't fit the parable very well. It's better to do this this way to, to assume that the host, which is the king, provides the wedding garments because the Gentiles are not dressed for a wedding. They're not worthy to go into the wedding because they're not dressed. So the owner, the host, gives them garments, which is symbolic of gives them righteousness so they are qualified now to enter into the banquet, which is the kingdom of God, because their alien righteousness is supplied to them, if you will. Their purity is supplied to them not by what they did to get dressed, but what the host did to dress them, what God did to dress them, which, of course, was by giving Jesus to, to redeem Gentiles and all believers from their sins. Adam Clark says there was a garment provided, but he neither put it on nor applied for it, this person in the parable, the one that's not dressed. His conduct, therefore, was in the highest degree insulting and indecorous. Which it is for somebody to come to God and says, I'm worthy to get in your kingdom. Everybody today believes you die, you automatically got a free pass to heaven, which is nonsense. You ain't invited, you ain't going. And you ain't dressed in a wedding garment, you're not getting in. Adam Clark also said to afford accidental guest clothing suitable to a marriage feast was a custom among the ancient Greeks. So apparently that was the custom back then. Jesus might have been referring to Zephaniah. It's an interesting quote here. This Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown both Mention this verse in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Indeed, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guest. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials, the king's sons, and all who are dressed in foreign clothing. Dressed in foreign clothing. People who aren't of the family. So that idea might have come from Zephaniah. Now, when is this judgment that he, the man without the wedding clothes is going to get thrown in the outer darkness in the next verse here? When did that happen? The final judgment at the end of the world, says Adam Clark. So we got two judgments here. The Jews got judged in AD 70 when their city was burnt. And now the Gentile who comes without a wedding garment, he gets his judgment at the end of the world. The judgment now is talking about individual judgment. Remember, the whole city was burnt down, so the Jewish nation was judged in this parable. And now at the end of the parable, individuals without wedding clothes, without the righteousness of Christ, they are individually judged. So we go from national judgment to individual judgment. We go from Jews and we go to Gentile judgment. Matthew chapter 22, verses 13 through 14. Then the king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a symbol of hell, the outer darkness. Weddings back then were held at night, so there was darkness outside of the, of the wedding feast. They're thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, does this really sound like Rob Bell's hell? There's no hell. Does it sound like annihilationism, like the, the guest was just annihilated where he had no more consciousness? Does it sound like he's going to be thrown out there temporarily, then he's going to pick himself up and come back into the banquet? No, it means eternal darkness. Hell, I say that because today in modern society and in the wussy puss Andy Stanley type church, we're not going to mention, or Joel Osteen, we're not going to mention hell. Jesus mentioned hell all the time. One time he called it eternal fire. And by the way, the metaphors are not meant to be mixed. One time 
where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth and the fire does not go out. That was referring to Gehenna in the Valley of Hinnom where they burnt trash. It just meant the torture, the nastiness, the stench would go on forever and ever. And here it's outer darkness, which means you'll be separated from the light of God. Darkness and fire don't coexist, of course, but that's not the point. The point is, is hell is an awful place, and why would you want to go there? And if you're going to pretend that you're not going to go there, you are a, and I'm saying this literally, a damn fool, a damned fool for thinking that. So Jesus tells them, weeping and gnashing of teeth if you don't believe me in my kingdom. He says, many are invited, but few are chosen. Now here I believe what he's doing is summarizing the first part. He's, he's referring back to the first part of the parable because he had spread out the invitation to the Jews so much. He had invited the Jews for the last three and a half years. He'd been going around saying, Jews, come to the kingdom. Come to the kingdom. He invited them all, Pharisees, Sadducees, all of them. But very few of them ended up following him. So he was saying few out of those original Jews are chosen. The reason I don't think it refers to the Gentiles here is because Jesus also gave parables about mustard seeds, being a little seed, growing to the big, big, big tree, to all the leaves of the nation, all the uh, birds of every nation resting in its branches. That's a sign that not a few, but a lot are chosen. And then you have the le- parable of the leaven in the lump of bread. A little tiny bit of leaven spreads and makes the dough get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. That exactly is the opposite feeling. So I believe he's referring to the Jews here who rejected him, not referring to the Gentiles who are going to be flocking into the church in the future ages. Again, the reason people don't think that way is because of pessimilinalism, both amill and premill. Oh, the church is going to go limping out of history while I polish the rails of brass on a sinking ship. Many are invited, but few are chosen. Go to Matthew 22, verse 15 through 17. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him by what he said. They'd had enough. They sent their disciples to him with the Herodians. Now, who were the Herodians? The Herodians were a a party of Jews who supported the Roman government. And Herod, starting with Herod the Great and his children, they, of course, were closely allied with the Roman government. They had their power from the Roman government. Even though they were Jews, Herod the Great was a Jew. They were Jews, but they were Jews who had sucked up to the Romans big time. And the Herodians, it is speculated, people are not sure, the scholars aren't sure for certain, but they speculated there's a party who supported the Roman Empire politically and they didn't want any kind of rebellion against the Roman Empire because they would lose their place. Pharisees, of course, were those who hated the Romans and they loved the the Mosaic Law plus all their oral traditions that they added to the Mosaic Law. Typically, the Pharisees and Herodians were bitter enemies. Because the Pharisees hated the Romans, the Herodians loved the Romans, and so the Pharisees and the Herodians did not love each other. But they hated Jesus for different reasons, but they allied themselves. This unholy alliance here, an unlikely alliance, was brought about because of the strength and the power of Jesus' message. So they're going to trap him, and this is how they start. Teacher, they said, we know that you are truthful and search truthfully the way of God. You defer to no one, for you don't show partiality. Their fawning, obsequious, Uriah Heap hypocrisy. They sound just like Eddie Haskell talking to Mr. Cleaver or, or, or June or Mrs. Mrs. Cleaver, Beaver's mama. It's exactly what they sound like. They, they're obvious hypocrites. And a verse later, a few verses later, it's, Jesus is going to say is going to say that Jesus detected their hypocrisy, and I can imagine it was not hard to do. So they continue. Tell us, therefore. What do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, here was the trap. If Jesus said, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then the Pharisees are going to be very mad and their sympathizers because they didn't like 
Rome, and they didn't like paying taxes to them. In fact, the Jews themselves were divided on the issue. Many people would not, did not want to pay taxes to Caesar because they hated Rome. So if Jesus said, yeah, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then the Pharisees would hate him. And in fact, he could have actually been tried by the Sanhedrin, according to Adam Clark. I don't know if that's true or not, but anyway, he would certainly arouse a lot of opposition and anger. But if, on the other hand, he said that, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. The Pharisees would like him, but the Herodians would hate him. And then they would probably get the Romans to try him for treason, according to John Gill. So there's your conflict right there. Do we support the religious party, the Pharisees, by not paying taxes to Caesar? Or does Jesus support the political powers, the Romans, and satisfy the Herodians, and thereby make the religious party, the Pharisees, angry at him? This was a pretty good trap. And the only reason it was able to be sprung or to be set was because the Herodians and Pharisees realized that there were two sides of the question. The people were divided, and he was going to, they were going to try to make Jesus take a stand and at least get half the people mad at him. Here's what Adam Clark says about this. The answer to this question was difficult when it is considered that multitudes of the people had begun now to receive Jesus as the promised Messiah, who was to be the deliverer of their nation from spiritual and temporal oppression and therefore had lately sung to him the Hosanna. If then he should decide the question in Caesar's favor, what idea must the people have of him, either as zealous for the law or as the expected Messiah? Jesus had just filled Jerusalem up with mobs of people saying, Hosanna to the king, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. And if he goes out and says, yeah, you got to pay taxes to Caesar, what are they going to think about that? They're going to think, this guy's a fraud. This Jesus is a fraud. We're not going to follow him anymore. So you see, this was a very, very delicate situation here. Now, the Herodians and Pharisees said they plotted. They had to plot secretly because Jesus was too popular amongst all these people. A riot in favor of Jesus would provoke the wrath of the Romans. So it was very important for them to get the people away from Jesus so they wouldn't support him anymore. Now, the Pharisees had been using, and the Sadducees had been using religious questions all throughout Jesus' ministry trying to trip him up. They said, this man claims he's the same as God the Father. He's blaspheming. He cast demons out by Beelzebub and on and on and on. They tried all this and it didn't work. The result of all this was a city full of adoring followers of Jesus, proclaiming him as the Messiah and shouting Hosanna. So all of that failed, so now they're going to try to get him politically, going to try to get him in trouble with the Romans. Now remember, the Pharisees had just endured three parables which were aimed straight at them, the two sons in the vineyard, the vineyard and the tenant farmers, and this marriage feast parable which I just mentioned. And they'd had enough. They were, they were tired of arguing with him. They were just going to get him. They were going after Jesus. So they buttered him up with all this obsequious rhetoric about what a great teacher Jesus was, trying to throw him off the guard, probably. By the way, this story has two synoptic parallels in Mark 12 and Luke 20, which we won't read because they don't add anything to the story. Matthew 22, verse 18. But perceiving their malice, and again, I don't think this was divine. I think this was natural because I think their malice was probably pretty obvious by now. Jesus said, why are you testing me, hypocrites? I mean, you know, little Jesus, meek and mild, he looked at people who were getting ready to kill him in two or three days and who had total power over him. Jesus had no army. He had no, he didn't even have a, a concealed weapons permit. He had nothing. And he says, why are you testing me, hypocrites? Just called them out right in front of everybody. Hypocrites, which they were. Luke says uh, he discerned their craftiness, which, of course, he understood the trap that was being laid for him. Gill said, John Gill, he, John Gill always does this. Jesus always operates out of his divine nature. I think, no, this is his human nature figuring this out because 
Jesus was no dummy looking at the natural. Of course, this, you know, these questions about the hypostatic union between Jesus the Son, Jesus the man, and Jesus God, and the divine Jesus, those questions are always so interesting to see how a God-man operates in history. It's, it's always interesting, so I always look at these questions. I don't try to take a stand on it because I don't think you can prove it one way or the other, but it is kind of interesting. Matthew 22, verses 19 through 21. Jesus says, show me the coin used for the tax. So they brought him a denarius. That doesn't mean the tax was a denarius. It means the actual coin that was used to pay the tax was a denarius coin. And it might have been two denarius or three denarius. I don't know how big the tax was. But he looked at the coin itself. Jesus continues, whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, therefore give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, when I've heard this parable all my life, and I never really understand the importance in the import of what Jesus was saying, because I didn't know what the coin was. Well, if you look at the coin, the two sides of the coin, one side, this is according to my NIV study Bible, one side had a portrait of the emperor Tiberius, and the other side had an inscription in Latin which said this, Tiberius, Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, the divine Augustus. So when Jesus said, pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar, he meant give him his money, but don't call him divine. So he was rebuking the Herodians at the same time that he was avoiding political revolution. He said, yeah, pay them the money. They deserve the money. The government, you know, it provides law keeping to keep you Jewish factions apart and keep you from killing each other and to arrest criminals and all that. Yeah, well, you pay them the money for that. But this business about Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, uh-uh, you don't, you don't render that kind of homage to a human being. And so he rebuked the Herodians. He also he also avoided the trap because he said, I'm not going to get involved in a political uprising here. So the Herodians were not able to get him to say that he wanted political revolution because he did say pay the tax. And the Pharisees couldn't say that he was blaspheming and, and worshiping the divine emperor because he was criticizing this picture on the back of the coin. Don't render to Caesar the things that are God's. He got out of the trap. Now, a point here, application time. If Caesar and church would both mind their own business, then there would be no church-state conflict. For example, in America, if the church, if the, this government would quit trying to shut down Christian schools because they teach against sodomy as marriage, and if the government would quit trying to interfere with the teaching of the church, as, for example, when in Houston a homosexual mayor required the sermon notes of all pastors in the church, and that kind of thing, if they would stop that kind of nonsense, then, hey, there's not going to be any problem. But if you're going to continue interfering with the church's rightful scope of jurisdiction, there's going to be conflict because Christians are not going to battle that. When the church starts, when the state starts telling the church that you have to recognize homosexual so-called marriages, uh-uh, we're not going to bow. It's not going to happen. There will be conflict. Because, but we will pay our taxes because we're supposed to pay our taxes. We're not going to join any revolution. The kingdom of God has nothing to do with revolution. This is what the church has to face in China. They don't face idiotic uh, sodomy marriage laws, but they do face a government that shuts their churches down and throws them into the, the slammer and says, don't preach the gospel. That's a direct contradiction. That's a direct conflict with the rights of the gospel to spread through this world. And the state loves to interfere with the church. And vice versa, too. The church ought not to be telling the state what to do either. 
But right now, the problem is the state is acting imperious, and Christians in America are going to have to learn to know when to say no and when to say yes, we'll obey you, and when to say no, we're not going to obey you. Throw me in jail if necessary, but we're not going to do it. So basically what Jesus' technique in avoiding this problem, this trap, was he avoided a false dichotomy. It was like the Herodians say, you got to pay, you got to give total alliance to Rome, and the Pharisees say, no, you can't pay, you got to give total allegiance to the Jewish law, and it was a false dichotomy, because yes, we do owe political duties to the government, and we also owe religious duties. That, this is a famous parable, it teaches us a lot, and of course the problems that have occurred between church and state are numerous. If you, all you got to do is read Western history. It comes up over and over and over again, especially in the area of education, for example. Matthew chapter 22, verse 22. When they, that's all the people that were listening, the Herodians and the Pharisees and all the people there, when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. They were amazed and they were silenced. Those were the people that had been sent by the Pharisees and the Herodians. They were amazed and they went back and reported to the Pharisees and the Herodians and said, guess what, guys? Screwed again. We weren't able to nail him. We'll take it up there next audio on verse 23. I hope you enjoy this audio. We'll see you next time.